Well, I want to set up this passage before I read it to you. It's very early Sunday morning. It's still dark. Just a couple of days earlier, uh, on Friday, Jesus was brutally murdered, crucified. And well before He was nailed to the cross, we're told that all the disciples abandoned Him. At Jesus' arrest, they were gone. In fact, with a shocking brevity, Mark in his gospel says this. He says, And they all left Jesus and fled. But there was a small group of women who stood by Jesus until the end. One of those was a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was a woman with a a checkered past, you might say, whose life had been dominated by evil. She was possessed uh, by seven demons at one point and until Jesus cast them out. And when Jesus passed through her village and, and healed her in such an incredible way, she went through this transformation, such a transformation that she actually left everything she knew and everything she had, and she followed Jesus. She, along with a small band of other women who, and disciples who traveled with Jesus, assisting Him uh, for the rest of His ministry. Well, here it is Sunday morning, and this same Mary Magdalene is on her way to see the body of Jesus, which she fully expects to be there. Look with me at John chapter 20. I'll read verses 1 through 8 for starters. The word of the Lord reads this way. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which we know is John, And said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Let me continue to read verses 9 and 10. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So John tells us that Mary Magdalene, she got up very early Sunday morning while it was still dark, and she was the first to go to the tomb. The other gospel writers tell us that there were other women with Mary. There must have been, because when she runs back to tell Peter and John what happened, she says in verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Now what probably happened was Mary went to the tomb with other women, But John singles her out in his description because to his readers, she would have been the best known of this group of ladies. It was not an uncommon uh, literary device for uh, an author to mention one person as a sort of representative for a group. So Mary is not alone, but when she gets to the tomb, she sees that the the stone has been taken away and there's no body there. So what does she do? She immediately runs to get... Peter and John, they were probably at John's house after John had taken in Jesus' mother. And she tells them all that had happened. And then Peter and John themselves, they ran to the tomb in order to investigate. Now, I love the way John describes this. He says, they both started running together, 
But three times John mentions that he outran Peter and got there first. Now, as a parent of four very competitive children, I can only imagine that when Peter and John were reunited in heaven, that Peter said to John, that was really important to you that you point out that you got to the the tomb first, that you beat me to the tomb. Three times you had to mention it? Really? I told you we weren't racing. Well, there was a 9th century Middle Eastern theologian named Ishadad of Merv who had an interesting take on this. He said that John's greater speed was due to the fact that he, unlike Peter, was unmarried. Apparently, Peter had enjoyed, in this guy's opinion, a little too much home cooking to actually win a foot race, according to Ishadad. It's hard to say really why uh, John outran Peter or if there's any real significance to the order of their arrival Uh, But John gets there first. He doesn't go into the tomb, though. He just sort of bends down and looks in. Peter arrives shortly thereafter. Peter kind of bursts in like a bull in a china shop, which doesn't surprise us if we remember uh, much about Peter's personality. And Peter finds the linen cloths lying where there would normally be a body. But there is no body. And then John finally comes in, and we're told in verse 8 that he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. This is what one biblical scholar, Leon Morris, uh, calls the climax of the narrative. John believing, inspired by the missing body. Up to this point, no one really believed that Jesus would be raised from the dead. But John sees that there's no body in the tomb, and we're told he finally believes. Now, what did he believe? Well, he believed that Jesus was resurrected. He believed that Jesus had returned to the Father just as he said he would. He believed in those scriptures that seemed to point to the resurrection of Jesus. Scriptures like Psalm 16 and Hosea 6.2. He believed that they were fulfilled in front of his very eyes. Here's what John realizes, and this is our first point this morning. The God of the Bible is a tomb-robbing God who rescues the dead from the grave and gives them new life. Now, if you've been with us for this study of John, you realize that that during his last week on earth, Jesus would say to to his disciples over and over again, I'm going away. I'm going away to the Father. I'm not going to be with you that much longer. He would also tell them that I'm going to prepare a place for you, that where I am going, you may be also. But the disciples, they they don't understand, they don't grasp what Jesus is saying to them. What he means that he's going away and that he's going to the Father and what he means that that he's going to bring them to be with him. But when John sees the empty tomb and realizes that Jesus has been raised from the dead, he finally understands what the Scriptures teach. Namely, that the Messiah would come and suffer and die and rise again and ultimately forever gather up all those who belong to him. See, the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of our resurrection, as we just recited by way of catechism. The Apostle Paul says emphatically that Christ has been raised from the dead and that He is the firstfruits of those who have already died. For those who are in Christ, we have all eternity to look forward to. First in heaven, of course, immediately after we die, but then when Christ returns, we will be uh, reunited with our bodies and new glorified bodies and we will live forever on a new earth that's been refurnished, that's been purified by fire, actually doing wonderful earthly things. 
We're not just going to float around and, and, and play violins or exist on clouds. We're going to live on a real earth doing earthly things where everything bad that we could ever imagine, sin, disease, death, suffering, all of those things, all of that's gone, and we will enjoy eternity with our Savior. So, see, heaven is not really the ultimate hope of the believer. Heaven is a stop on a round-trip journey, and we're going to spend eternity with our Savior. Now, of course, God demonstrates His power not just in raising people from the dead physically, but also as He raises people from the dead spiritually. The Bible says that every person ever born is born dead in sin, separated from God, estranged from the very God who made us, enslaved to sin, destined for eternal condemnation. We were created to be in relationship with God, to, to actually worship and enjoy this God who made us. But because of the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve, which we constantly, constantly reenact by our own disobedience, we're born self-worshippers, not God-worshippers. We're born self-lovers, not God-lovers. We're born those who reject God and His authority over us. We are born enemies of God and objects of His wrath. Our only hope is to be cleansed of our sin, made alive spiritually, which is a miracle which is actually no less incredible than the physical birth. In the early 2000s, I was taking a preaching class I was in grad, grad school at a school just north of Chicago, and my professor was a man by the name of Erwin Lutzer. Now, some of you have probably heard of Erwin Lutzer. He was at the uh, Moody Church in downtown Chicago for more than 30 years and really a bit of an iconic figure in that area. Um, he, was a, uh, he, he is a Canadian who has this deep voice and, and just a terrific uh, preacher. Well, I was taking this class with him, and one morning he asked us, it was a small class, maybe 11 or 12 people, he asked us to get into our cars and to follow him. We were going to be taking class off-site. So we got into our cars, followed him. The next thing I knew, I was standing in an Illinois graveyard about five miles from the school. I was early one Thursday morning. It was March. It was, it was freezing outside. My, my toes were, were numb almost immediately the, with dew still on the ground. And, um, but cold toes, though, would be the least of my concerns. Dr. Lutzer took us to the tombstone of a man by the name of Jacob Miller, and we just kind of stood there awkwardly in silence. And after a, about a minute, he suddenly began shouting in the direction of the stone, Jacob, arise and come forth. This continued for what seemed like an hour. I know it was probably only a minute or two, but he just kept yelling at this tombstone and saying, Jacob, come up from the grave. And, of course, nothing happened. He just kept getting louder and louder. And um, I was, had my baseball cap on. I was looking for a, a rock to hide under. It was more embarrassing than anything else, but he just kept going. Undeterred by Jacob's uh, non-response, Lutzer kept yelling louder and louder. In fact, he apologized at one point for not being loud enough. He said, maybe, maybe I'm not being loud enough. Maybe Jacob can hear me. He said, Jacob, rise from the dead. Get up from your slumber and live. Now, still nothing. At this point, I, he was yelling so loudly and passionately, I was beginning to wonder, maybe this guy will rise from the dead at which point I would have been terrified. But he stopped after what seemed like an eternity. And he said, I want you to know I made that commotion to illustrate that salvation is a miracle of the Lord. 
There's nothing we can do by yelling, by our argumentation, by our persuasion. There's nothing we can do to make someone who is dead come to life. But, he went on to say, God does make people alive. Through the presentation of the gospel, through the work of the Spirit, God takes people who are dead spiritually and He makes them alive in Christ. We can't save anyone. We can't cleanse anyone. We can't bring about forgiveness. But God is in the business of taking people who are lost, people who are alienated from Him, people who are are dead, and granting them new life. His resurrection power is at work today. For all those who trust in God's Son, who turn from their rebellion, who, who cling to Christ and His cross work, who believe that Jesus died on the cross for them, and they have no other hope for eternity, God completely cleanses them, makes them alive, and He gives them new eternal life. See, the resurrection is not just a doctrinal truth, although it is that. The resurrection is not just a historical reality, although it is that. The resurrection reveals God's saving and ongoing power to make all things new. God has the power even to raise dead people from the grave. And it was with that newfound understanding that the disciples, they just went home. But not Mary. She's still in a bad way. She still is plagued by doubts. Look at verses 11 through 13. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Peter and John are gone. John doesn't really tell us much about why they went home or how that went, but they're gone. But Mary is still at the tomb, and she can't stop sobbing. She is utterly undone. And through her tears, she stoops to look into the tomb, and when she does, she sees two angels who say to her, Why are you weeping? Now, on the surface, that seems to be an odd question, doesn't it? It almost seems kind of rude. She's at a graveside. Why would it be surprising that she's crying? But really what the angels are doing is what any good counselor or any good pastor, or really for that matter, any good parent does. We enter into the space of those who are hurting with kindness and openness and and listening ears. Sometimes the best thing we can do for those who are hurting is is just sit and listen or, or maybe ask them, what are you feeling right now? What are you going through? What is it that is bringing so much pain. Well, Mary immediately assumed that there had been a grave raid. She said, someone has stolen the body. Three times, in fact, Mary concludes this, which is really not a far-fetched conclusion. There were grave robbers in that day who would break into tombs. They would steal anything valuable, uh, ointment or jewelry or gold. So this is not terribly far-fetched. But grave raiders had not stolen Jesus' body. In fact, he was actually there with her, though she didn't realize it yet. Look at verses 14 and 15. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him 
away. After answering the angels, Mary turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't know it's him. She doesn't recognize him. We don't know why. Maybe her eyes were filled with tears. Maybe it was still dark and she couldn't see clearly, but she doesn't know that Jesus is with her. She thinks he's the gardener. Who else would be at the tomb that early in the morning? But it's Jesus who asks Mary the same question the angels ask. He says, woman, why are you weeping? Now, I should point out, because we've seen two people address Mary as woman at this point, I should point out that to, to, say, to say that was not disrespectful in that time and culture. It was actually a, a courteous, warm response. Now, it's not like that today. If I got home from work and I saw that Janine was upset and sobbing, and I said to her, woman, why are you crying? Her sadness would probably turn into a different emotion. But to Mary, this actually would have been a tender response. And the question itself, why are you weeping, is, is rhetorical. It's not even really meant to be answered. Jesus is actually inviting Mary to consider him, who he really is. She answers Jesus, and then she turns back toward the angels. And then Jesus calls her name. And I can just imagine this, you know, kind of with CGI and all the effects we have. It's a, the whole world, Mary is frozen in time, and the rest of the world just spins around her. It's kind of a, a Matrix-like moment. She's there. She's frozen. She has heard her name, and everything freezes. Now look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. One of the beautiful things about going through books of the Bible expositionally, which just means preaching through them section by section, kind of remaining in a book for a long time, is you get to see in powerful ways how the Bible all fits together and even how sections within the same book fit together. Way back in John 10, I say way back, in real time it wasn't that far ago, long ago, but Jesus is talking about all the temptations that threaten his followers, and he's, and he's talking about all the dangers that may encroach upon them, and, and even false teachers that may sneak in and try to steal away his sheep. And Jesus says, this is so beautiful, he says, I know my own, and they know me. My sheep hear my voice, and they know it's me. And then he says, I call them by name. Well, here is the example of this played out in real life. Jesus calls Mary by name, and she recognizes Jesus' voice because she belongs to him. She is known by him. Yes, she's crippled with doubts, and she doesn't know how to make sense of all of this. But Jesus doesn't respond with frustration. He is gracious toward her, as he always does. He moves toward her with compassion. And he says, whom are you seeking? Now, he knows who she's looking for, she's looking for him. But the question again was meant to open her eyes to the reality of who he is. This is not an interrogation by Jesus. This is an invitation. One biblical scholar writes this, this is an invitation to reflect on the kind of Messiah she was expecting and thus to widen her horizons and to recognize that as grand as her devotion to him was, her estimate of him was still far too small. Mary's view of Jesus was still too small. She still didn't understand who was in front of her. Yes, she recognized it was Jesus, but she didn't fully grasp the magnitude of her Savior's love. 
She, she believes in Jesus. I think we can even say she has a faith in Jesus, but she's overwhelmed with doubts. And Jesus comes to her and very calmly comforts her. Here's the second point I want to make this morning. Jesus delights in tenderly assuaging the doubts of his children. Now, if you're sitting at home or you're a kid and you're watching this with a par- your parents, all to assuage, it just means to relieve. Jesus relieves the doubts of his children. And in fact, he delights in doing so. Sometimes we feel like God is in heaven with a spiritual measuring stick. And he's constantly evaluating the strength of the faith of his children. And if he sees doubt in them, he's discouraged by that. He's frustrated by them. Why won't they believe more? Here Jesus shows us something about God, as he always does. The Son of God is a compassionate Savior who is not put off by our doubts. As some of you know, our oldest son is getting married in July. At least that's what we hope if we're able to travel and, and, and enjoy the ceremony. And Last summer we had the chance to, to take his fiancée, Emily, along with us on our family vacation to the beach. and We had a whole week with her and we, just, we love Emily. She is an amazing young woman. She loves Jesus. She loves the church. She's a, an absolute pleasure to be around. Well, one of the things that I was most impressed with, frankly, that really endeared her to me the most was her openness about her own doubts. She's not a person who acts like, oh, I've got all the answers. I've got God all figured out in an outline. She said, no, you know, when I think about this, I don't know what to think. And sometimes I'm afraid and sometimes I really have real doubts. Maybe you're watching this this morning from your living room or maybe you're in the den or maybe you're... You're in your office with, with your kids and, and you're reading about the coronavirus and you're reading about the spread throughout our world and, and you have doubts. You have doubts. How could this possibly end well? Where is God in all of this? Why would a good God allow such suffering? Maybe you have doubts this morning. Well, Jesus takes great pleasure in coming to the aid of his doubting children. He's not put off by our questions. He's not annoyed by our earnestness, by our honesty. Jesus delights in coming to the aid of his doubting children. Just tell him what you're going through. Tell him what you're struggling with. Tell him what hurts you. Tell him what scares you. Consider the example of Mary. You want to know something about the compassion of Jesus. Think of all that she'd been through and seen with Jesus. She was in the inner circle. She traveled with Jesus. She walked with Jesus. She heard his sermons. She was there to listen to Jesus and his beautiful teaching. She saw the miracles, and yet still, she didn't even believe for a second that Jesus would actually rise from the dead. She was actually so unexpected. You know, you ever been somewhere and you you, you saw someone that you totally didn't expect, and and maybe you knew them for years, but it's so weird to see them in that surrounding, you don't even recognize them? She was so unexpected of Jesus that when he was right in front of him, She was right in front of her. She did not recognize him. And yet, how does Jesus respond? With incredible grace, with tenderness. Look at verses 17 and 18. The grace continues. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
and that he had said these things to her. Now, when Jesus says to her, do not cling to me, this is not a cold-hearted snub by Jesus. If I recall, the King James Version says, do not touch me. It's not really harsh at all. It's not though Jesus is saying, get off me. He's simply saying, I have other people to pursue. But you go and you tell your brothers that I'm here. Now, given the way the disciples had abandoned Jesus, it's surprising to me that Jesus didn't say to Mary, when you see those hypocritical, weak-minded, people-pleasing cowards, tell them I want to have a word with them. But he doesn't say that. Once again, grace on display. He refers to his betraying disciples as brothers. Now, just a week earlier when Jesus had been, actually less than a week earlier, Jesus had been with his disciples, and he says to them, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. And now he, he sort of ratchets up the intimacy. Now they're more than just friends, he says they are brothers. And by the way, this is the first time that Jesus has referred to anybody as brothers. It's the first time he's used this moniker to describe anybody except those who were part of his natural family. And isn't brothers such a gracious word to describe those who had defected, those who had abandoned him at his darkest hour? I think it's worth asking the question, how do you respond when you're betrayed? How do you respond when someone that you love and someone that you've trusted, maybe you've invested so much time and energy and you've let your guard down, you've been vulnerable with them, and they have sort of taken your heart, as it were, and stomped on it? They have betrayed you. They have abandoned you. If I'm being candid with you, when I'm betrayed, I feel angry. I feel upset. Everything in in me wants to write off the person who's wronged me. That's only happened a few times in my life when I've been betrayed at this really deep, heart-wrenching level. But when it happens, I really want nothing to do with that person again. And when I'm in moments in the flesh, I think I, I want nothing. I don't even want to hear them about them or see about them again. But not so with Jesus. He had experienced when he needed them most, his disciples abandoned him. They literally left him for dead. What's the first thing that he says to tells Mary to tell them? He says, go tell your brothers. We saw last week how Jesus redefines family and in his family... There's actually room for the betrayer, for the blasphemer, the murderer, the adulterer, the alcoholic, those who have struggled with all types of sins. And notice, not only does he call them brothers, he tells Mary to inform his brothers that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. The disciples would be informed that they are not only brothers, but Jesus' father is their father as well. Now, of course, Jesus' relationship with God the Father is different than that of the disciples or is different than our relationship. Jesus, God is Jesus' Father by nature. Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. God is our Father by grace and by adoption. But to this group of men who had sinned against Jesus in what I really think is the most hurtful way imaginable, Jesus reminds them that by faith they have been fully adopted into God's family. He is their Savior and their brother, and God is their Creator and their Father. Despite their denial of Him, their status with Him and in God's family was secure. And here's what I think Jesus is saying to them. This is our third or final point this morning. Regardless of what you've done, 
You are never too far gone to be part of Jesus' family. For 20 chapters of, of John's gospel, we've seen Jesus welcome and embrace the despised, the people that nobody else wanted anything to do with, the unclean, the rejected, the outcast, the marginalized. Jesus actually embraces them. Jesus moves forward toward them in love. The prostitute, the adulterer, the scandalous serial sinner, these are the ones who find an audience with Jesus. These are the ones who find his embrace. The scandalous sinners, because really that's all there are. Sinners who admit they're broken people and sinners who try to cover up and deny it. But you know, sometimes we feel like there are certain sins. There are certain offenses against God that are just beyond forgiveness. And maybe it's a sin that you've committed. You just feel like there's no way that God could ever really forgive me. Or maybe we feel like there are, certain, there are a number of times that we can sin, but once we cross that threshold, there is no forgiveness left. We believe that when we sin so many times, God says, okay, that's enough. That's enough. You've gone too far this time. But that's never what we see with Jesus, who in fact reveals God to us. He's always welcoming the broken. He's always embracing the sinner. There is no offense beyond the scope of God's grace to heal and totally forgive. Toward the end of last year, I was asked to write an essay for a, a pretty popular uh, website that has millions of hits a day. And so I was, I was excited about it. I was encouraged by it. I really just took some time to think about what should I write on and had uh, Janine look it over and proofread it. And after I carved out some time and wrote my essay, I sent it to the managing editor. And uh, he was very kind in his response. And, and I was just deeply encouraged by what he said in return. He sent back to me a revised version with just a few little edits in it. Now, most of it was the moving of a comma here to there, whatever it was. Uh, but I noticed that he had changed one line. He didn't mention it to me at all. He didn't say anything about it. He changed one line. One of the statements that I had made toward the end was that God's grace was sufficient even to cover the sins of doctors who committed abortions. And then I, I said this phrase. I made this phrase. Even women who have had multiple abortions. And I noticed that when I got it back, he had changed that sentence to read that God's grace was sufficient to women who have had an abortion. And I was really puzzled by that. I didn't know why he changed that. And I want to give him, of course, the benefit of the doubt. And don't get me wrong, I hate abortion. I believe it is a grievous evil against the most helpless of all people, the preborn. But do we think for a moment that a woman who's had multiple abortions is beyond God's grace to forgive? Not for a moment, not a chance. There is no sin, there, there are no number of sins that we could commit that could ever prevent us from being forgiven and adopted into God's family. We are never too far gone to repent and believe and be embraced by our Heavenly Father in Christ. If the cross is history's ultimate purchase, the greatest purchase ever, Jesus Christ buying our freedom, redeeming us from sin's enslavement and death's grip, then the resurrection is history's ultimate receipt. A CVS-worthy receipt that has God's final stamp on it, paid in full. 
the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus' cross work was sufficient. It was enough. The Apostle Paul was a murderous blasphemer. King David was a polygamist, an adulterer, and a murderer. Abraham scoffed at God. He laughed at the promises of God. He tried to give his own wife away twice. He was a liar. The disciples left Jesus for dead, abandoned him again at his darkest hour. They fought for preeminence. They wanted to be first. They wanted to be closest to Jesus in the kingdom. They needed physical proof in order that they would believe. Mary Magdalene had been the direct recipient of Jesus' power. She had seen him do incredible things. Yet she still didn't believe that he would rise from the dead. There's only one hero of the Bible. And the rest of it is filled with failures, scoundrels, liars, adulterers, murderers, sinners. But these are failures who are welcomed into God's family by faith. Wherever you are this morning, you're not too far gone. Maybe you're tuning in on Easter and it's your custom to watch a service or go to a service on Christmas or Easter and you really have not shown any interest in the things of God for months. Maybe you've committed a sin you've never told anyone about. Maybe when you were a teenager, maybe early in your marriage, maybe there's something you've done that you've been ashamed to tell anyone about and in your heart you think, I'm beyond the forgiveness of God. Maybe you've committed the same sin over and over and over again. And you promised God that last time would be the last offense. But you go back and you sin again in the same way. Whatever your scenario is, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the evidence that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was enough. It was enough for my sin my selfishness, my rebellion, my arrogance, my laziness, all of my sin. It was enough for your sin. Whatever it is, you're never too far gone to be part of the family of God by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. And I pray that that's the case for you this morning. Our sins, yes, they are so many. They're beyond us even knowing or counting. But His mercy is so much more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning for your grace. We thank you this morning that over and over in the Scriptures we see Jesus coming to the aid, attending to those who were doubtful, welcoming the sinful into His presence, embracing those who had been written off by everyone else. Father, I pray this morning for those who are watching in a different state, in a different country, maybe here in Harvest, and they've been led to believe that their sin is too much, that they're beyond forgiveness. Father, I pray that you would give them the grace to believe, help them to understand the sufficiency of Christ's work and the depth of your mercy. And I pray for those this morning who, when they hear this message, they're naturally thinking about somebody else. Oh, they think this is a good message for somebody else, but they don't realize they're so puffed up with self-righteousness, they don't even see their own sin. Father, I pray that you would give them eyes to see, help them to see and understand the beauty of your forgiveness 
the magnificence of the grace of Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.